Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello, and welcome to the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're into the sixth episode of the Declaration Centenary season, and we're looking at books about Israel by writers from within and outside the country, including Syed Kashua, Asaf Gavron, Orly Castelblum, Zachary Lazar, Dror Burstein, Yoel Hoffman, and Omri Bum. Some are written in Hebrew, others in English. Some are contemporary, others classics. Today we're talking the novella Kirbet Kizeh by S. Yazar, the pen name of Yazar Smilansky. It was originally published in Hebrew in 1949, one year after the events it describes, and was translated into English by the venerable Nicholas Delange with Jacob Dweck. By now you know that I will pick up a book simply because of its cover, and that was 100% the case with Kirbet Kizeh which I'm almost certain is more accurately pronounced Hirbet Chizeh, but I won't be making those sounds again. The cover to this pocket-sized book is by the excellent Pablo Delcan, and it shows a sun setting, or rising, over a valley. That, in one image, is the setting of the story. As for the plot, it's also easily described. It's a tale told by an Israeli soldier about his participation in a military operation to drive out, in organized fashion, the Arab inhabitants of a small village, Kirvat Kizeh, during the last days of the Israeli War of Independence in 1948. The story takes place over the course of one day, shortly after sunrise to shortly before sunset. It is one tale that I imagine stands for many during this period and since this period. It also stands in the mind of the narrator for the numerous biblical tales of exile that have been told for thousands of years. As for the themes of the book, they are, like everything else in this novella, laid out in concise fashion. In this case, in the three brilliant opening paragraphs of the story. Here's paragraph one. True, it all happened a long time ago, but it has haunted me ever since. I sought to drown it out with the din of passing time, to diminish its value, to blunt its edge with the rush of daily life, and I even occasionally managed a sober shrug, managed to see that the whole thing had not been so bad after all, congratulating myself on my patience, which is, of course, the brother of true wisdom. But sometimes I would shake myself again, astonished at how easy it had been to be seduced, to be knowingly led astray and join the great general mass of liars, that mass compounded of crass ignorance, utilitarian indifference, and shameless self-interest, and exchange a single great truth for the cynical shrug of a hardened sinner. I saw that I could no longer hold back, and although I hadn't even made up my mind where it would end, it seemed to me that, in any case, instead of staying silent, I should rather start telling the story. So here what we have is a man recalling a story. And though he says it all happened a long time ago, that's hardly the case. The novel was almost certainly drafted within months, if not weeks, of the events it describes, which makes its foresight and its judgments 
particularly daring. Here's paragraph number two, which, by the way, unfolds over one long sentence. One option is to tell the story in order, beginning with one clear day, one clear winter's day, and describing in detail the departure and the journey, when the dirt paths were moistened by the earlier rain, and the cactus hedges surrounded by the citrus groves were burned by the sun, their feet as of old, licked by flocks of dense, damp, dark green nettles, as the noonday gradually advanced, a pleasant, unhurried noonday, which moved on as usual and turned into a darkening twilight chill, when it was all over, finished, done. In this paragraph, the narrator says there are numerous ways, or options, for telling the story. One way to tell it is through descriptions of the natural world. A clear winter's day, dirt paths, cactus hedges, dark green nettles. The events that will unfold are encapsulated in, quote, the pleasant unhurried noonday, unquote, and the, quote, darkening twilight chill, unquote. In this version, there are no people and there is no human activity. There is only the natural world, and the narration proceeds through descriptions of this world without what could be called unnatural interventions, just as in this long sentence. Finally, here is the third paragraph. According to the narrator, it's, quote, another and possibly better option, unquote. Another and possibly better option, however, would be to begin differently and to mention straight away what had been the purpose of that entire day from the start operational order number such and such on such and such day of the month in the margin of which in the final section that was simply entitled miscellaneous it said in a short line and a half that although the mission must be executed decisively and precisely whatever happened no violent outbursts or disorderly conduct it said would be permitted which only indicated straight away that there was something amiss that anything was possible and even planned and foreseen and that one couldn't evaluate this straightforward final clause before returning to the opening and also scanning the noteworthy clause entitled Information, which immediately warned of the mounting danger of infiltrators, terrorist cells, and, in a wonderful turn of phrase, operatives dispatched on hostile missions. But also the subsequent and even more noteworthy clause, which explicitly stated, Assemble the inhabitants of the area extending from point X, see attached map, to point Y, see same map, load them onto transports, and convey them across our lines, blow up the stone houses, and burn the huts, detain the youths and the suspects, and clear the area of hostile forces. And so on and so forth. So that it was now obvious how many good and honest hopes were being invested in those who were being sent out to implement all this burn, blow up, imprison, load, convey, who would burn, blow up, imprison, load, and convey with such courtesy and with a restraint born of true culture. And this would be a sign of a wind of change. In this paragraph, the descriptions of the natural world have been replaced by descriptions of the human world. Informant. Infiltrator. Terrorist cells. Operatives. Missions. Dirt paths and cactus hedges have become points X and why. The change in language and the way language is drawing attention towards itself, as opposed to leading the reader to something external, like it did in the previous paragraph, marks what could be considered a contrast between the natural world in that second paragraph 
and the world of human culture in this third. It's the juxtaposition of these two elements, a world without people, or at least without people at its center, and a world that is focused on people and their passing priorities. It's that juxtaposition that is the uneasy center of this book. The uneasiness is an expression of the sense that what humans do is contrary to the world as it is. It's a powerfully expressed and inexhaustible theme. And it is the way Yazar writes it that makes this 100-page tale so great. At the center of this tug of war between what is given to us, the natural world, and what we make of it, human intervention, is the narrator, an unnamed soldier. He will often give us elaborate descriptions of what he sees. He is, after all, the author of that wonderful second paragraph. But for large parts of the novel, he treats these descriptions of the natural world as secondary to his military mission. As he hinted at the beginning of that third paragraph, Another and possibly better option. He prefers to tell the story as a mission, with nature providing the backdrop. As for the plot, here is an early word from the soldier narrator. We reached a hill where we crouched under a cactus hedge, and we were ready to eat something when the man, one Moishe, the company commander, gathered us together and briefed us about the situation, the lay of the land, and the objective. From which it transpired that the houses on the lower slope of the hill were some Kirbet Kize or other, and all the surrounding crops and fields belonged to that village, whose abundant water, good soil, and celebrated husbandry had gained a reputation almost equal to that of its inhabitants, who were, they said, a band of ruffians, who gave succor to the enemy, and were ready for any mischief should the opportunity only arise, or, for example, should they happen to encounter any Jews, you could be sure they would wipe them out, at once. Such were their ways. And when we fixed our sights upon those few houses on the flanks of that unobtrusive hill, we saw that this whole Kirbit Kize presented no problem, truly did not justify any further explanation. In terms of the plot, we understand, from this paragraph, that the unit expects the day to be easy enough. But as the day unfolds, it seems more effort is required than was initially rationed. The major problem is the enemy, the inhabitants of Kirbet Kize. Far from infiltrators and terrorist cells that the unit of soldiers expected and which did exist at the time, the soldiers are faced with those who had been left behind, the old, the young, the women, the lame, and the blind. Sending them into exile is more difficult than expected, and the confrontations between soldier and villager are hard to read. Here we have a typical passage. In the next courtyard, on a stone beside a house, we found an old man who seemed to be waiting for our arrival and rose up to greet us, and began to pester us with the whole ceremony of greetings and blessings, and even tried to kiss the hand of our wireless operator. Someone pushed him aside and said to him brusquely that he should go over there and shut up. These passages describe incidents of brutality, and there are many in the course of the day. What this brutality produces in the mind of the reader, and therefore also in the nameless narrator, is empathy. The passage would have been powerless without empathy. Rousseau pointed out long ago that language leads to comparing, contrasting, creating order and hierarchy. But in this novella, language is nature, if I can put it that way, 
produces a bridge, not a wall. This is another way that nature and human intervention are at play in this book. As the soldier narrator passes through the hours of the day, this empathy builds up in him until it is time for him to try to revolt. As you can tell, I thought this was an excellent book. Of the many questions that it leaves me asking, one, slightly to the side, returns me to one of the original subjects in the novella. The question is, why do writers derive so much power from describing the natural world? This is true in Dror Burstein's Natanya, which we previously reviewed, in Evie Wilde's After the Fire, A Still Small Voice, in Peter Matheson's Shadow Country, and here in Kirvet Kizé. There are many answers to this question, I'm sure, but the one that came to me is that maybe this power is derived in part from the old power of naming things and thereby creating them. That was God's job once upon a time, and now the writer takes claim. Next up on this season of Burning Books podcasts will be Yoel Hoffman's quasi-novel, quasi-meditation, Moods, where the title says it all. Burning Books is part of the Latopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email, the show button, all by going to latopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the links to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod, and I'm at Facebook at facebook.com slash Eric Beck Rubin. My thanks to Natalie Matheson, Hakan Osgan for the music, to Peter Cox, executive producer of this program, and as always, go Jays.